Welcome to Around the IT Block Podcast, presented by HPE. I'm your host, the IT Oddfather, Calvin Zito. This is podcast number 15, and I'm excited about this topic because I think for me, this is going to be something I'm going to learn about, and hopefully you guys will too. The topic we're going to focus on is artificial intelligence or AI, and we're going to talk about what's really happening today in AI. Joining me on the podcast are Jonas Andrulis, founder and CEO of Aleph Alpha, and Soren Charon, VP and fellow for HPE AI Strategy and Solutions. Jonas, let me start with you. How is AI changed? Yeah, thanks um, for being here. So there's a kind of technology that has been driving this kind of third wave of AI. Um, and that is basically supervised learning. And, and what that means is that there are humans that are creating ground truth, they are labeling data, and that data is labeled to certain specifications. Those specifications are basically created by the researchers. And those specifications could be things like bounding boxes around pedestrians for like an automotive use case. And um, what happens with that, if you if you build these kind of systems, is that um, you're basically narrowing down the uh, perception of an AI system, doesn't matter how big it is, to the very simple differentiation between pedestrian yes, no. Right? And this is this is something that it, where an AI system, even if it's a huge um, neural network, is just a functional approximator that's learning to map a certain input to a certain output. And there's no context understanding, there's no world knowledge, there's nothing really in it that is worth maybe the the term intelligence and that's also the reason why we've seen these systems although they are of course better than everything that has come before they're making stupid mistakes they're getting things wrong which a human would never get wrong right because they are lacking this common sense they are lacking something that goes beyond a mathematically optimized mapping from a certain input to a certain output. And this is changing now. And basically, Jan LeCun, for example, uh, promised us this uh, in, in, in NIPS 2016 with like a famous cake slide where he said, the supervised learning um, is just the icing on the cake of, of the AI revolution. And since a few months, and this is just very recent development, we are seeing massive improvements in systems that don't rely on human-generated signal, but basically just observe the world, look at everything that's out there, and understand patterns, understand structure, and understand meaning behind it. So, wow, that's a lot for me to unpack, but let me think through what you were, you've kind of talked about. We, I just did a podcast, uh, actually, last week, with our HPE Esmeral team and Matt Macau, our CTO for Esmeral was on there. And one of the examples he gave was humans in a car can see a horse in a trailer and they know the horse is in a trailer, but AI doesn't necessarily understand that when it sees a horse that it's in a trailer. Give me some examples from your end of where you see that kind of like you know, stuff that's common sense to humans to recognize that now AI is starting to 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 understand. So and that's that's a great example. And I've been working in the automotive field quite a bit myself. And um, we have had all these problems. For example, let's go back to pedestrians, right? Then sometimes you have an ad 
that's on, on a bus stop and that ad displays a a photo of, of a person right like a life science person and we we as humans we certainly have no problem understanding that this is an ad right this is not a human um, same goes for the reflection of a pedestrian in like a reflecting window um, all these kinds of things. You have people in carnival that are dressed up in fancy costumes. No problems for us at all. And the reason why for us humans, by the way, the same goes for NLP, right? If you go for texts, basically the uh, old school AI is very much dependent on keywords uh, and it's trying to recognize certain um, uh, words and frequency patterns. Um, but our world is so much more complex than that. It's relatively straightforward to build this system for like a 95% use case, because this is where you can break down your observations. You can break down the complexity to like driving lanes, pedestrians, um, traffic lights, but our world is so much more complex. And then there's these few percent of tail observations where all these context knowledge or this complexity comes into place. And this is really where all these supervised systems break down. And it's incredibly you know, uh, difficult, almost impossible to build a system that is capable of understanding every possible observation. But Jonas, let me challenge that for a moment in the sense that obviously you've been promised uh, that you'll be driving a car in 20 uh, actually a car will drive us in 2024 we are we are not there yet right Thomas driving is still a bit away for that car that will, we will take us from point a to point b so what, what you have described is that 95 percent is enough right and for the five percent which are actually presented by the corner cases i might have to do retrain on the spot i might have to re-explain and obviously there are, there is a lot of r d that is trying to understand you know focusing on attention and try to actually understand what is the background in order to identify that it's not a pink elephant in, in the trunk of the car but it's actually a pink elephant on the trunk of the car on a poster right so there is a lot of um, uh, online training and some other techniques that are doing that Currently, with the technology today, almost all the autonomous manufacturers are looking at supervised learning plus a bit of uh, a bit of uh, uh, other techniques. But most of the models that are running on the cars that we are planning to drive are basically supervised learning. So now, if I'm actually moving 85% with online training with uh, a bit of DRL or whatever other else, would you be able? Would you sit in a car which accuracy is actually 98% to take you from point A to point B? Well, I think we are expecting systems that have security critical applications to be much better than a human would be. And um, especially if we are putting our fate into their hands, right? So I, I'm not like the, I'm not claiming that you can solve autonomous systems in a supervised fashion. You can certainly do this, but if you, or you can at least try, but if you're by, by doing that and by basically same goes for, for NLP tasks. By reducing the, the complexity of a task to the supervised problem, even if it has a lot of classes or if it has a lot of like options that it can go through, then you're essentially dumbing it down. And you're dumbing it down in a way that humans are not doing it. Like you are, if you are driving a car and you're seeing something moving, you are not asking yourself whether that's a pedestrian or not. You are understanding it in a much more complex, high dimensional space. And this is kind of something like world knowledge. And we are seeing this, we are seeing these world systems, these, these world models um, 
providing capabilities and functions that are astounding far beyond um, a algorithmic or a pseudo recipe based computation that is based on some like models or uh, classes. So I'm saying that, yes, you can do awesome things with supervised learning. Um, there it's highly useful. It has some advantages. It's maybe also easier to understand what's going on there, but it will never be able to do what humans are doing. I do agree with that. Um, but what I don't want us to forget for now is that we own this third wave of AI, which hopefully will not end, uh, will not end in a winter, but in an explosion of, uh, of, of springs, to computer vision and basically to supervised learning, right? So this actually is, uh, enabled the flourishment and the, the idea of you know, how, how do we actually look at, uh, you know, at uh, generative networks or reinforcement learning or deep evolution reinforcement learning or multimodals or whatever other else, right? Transformers also moving over to to the way we are looking at natural language processing and so on actually was a subsequent evolution from the fact that we did have the explosion of computer vision and computers actually at using supervised learning were rather better at tasks than us. Moving onwards, I agree that supervised learning is not enough from images, for example. Even in autonomous driving, we are still using uh, LIDARs and radars and whatever other else. We are trying to combine them with other type of sensor to make the right decision. I wanted to ask you a question is, so what do you think is the next step from the supervised learning onwards? And can you give can you give us some examples about including what you're actually doing at Aleph Alpha? Because I do believe that the listener, our listeners would be interested in thought to say, okay, this is the problem. Okay, but what is the solution? What we are already seeing, and this is kind of the a, a development that we are right in the middle of, is that we're going from supervised systems where humans are giving the, the signal, are designing the signal and goal of the system to self-supervised systems. And they used to be called unsupervised in the past, and then like it, we found out that self-supervised is more fitting. Um, and those are systems that are that are basically just looking at data and understanding the structure in data. And uh, good examples for that is uh, GPT-3, for example, Stali, for example. And those are systems that are um, just reading all the internet, for example, in GPT-3's case. And um, this the system is basically being trained on um, having a text and cutting it off at, at some uh, place in the text. And then the AI is trained on completing the text. So it's a little bit like these autocomplete systems that we have in the cell phones. And it turns out that if you if you build a system like that, and if you if you start training that, the first thing it learns is uh, the correct spelling, and then the second thing it learns is like words that come together often, and then it learns grammar, and then it learns like speech patterns and and things like that. Um, and this is all like makes sense, right? That that these systems learn these kind of um, capabilities, but it turns out if you make them even bigger and if you give them even more observations they seem to learn some things that we wouldn't have thought that these systems could learn. I have two comments there, which one of them is a question and the other one is a statement. When do you believe we're actually going to reach out um, uh, to actually have an AI as a service when instead of actually going out and understanding, for example, if I'm somebody that wants to write a piece of code and I don't know, how to how to write it, but I can actually reach out to an AI service that is writing uh, that can write the code for me, 
or I'm actually maybe a hospital that actually has to triage various patients whenever they come to the emergency room, and I can maybe use another AI service somewhere on the internet that basically allows me based on the patient past or whatever other else to to prioritize them accordingly. Or I'm a news agency that wants to uh, to um, uh, to look at breaking news and try to generate everything as a service uh, using somebody on the internet. So when do you, how close do you think we are from general purpose models of delivering that to us across across various uh, across various industries, for example. That is the first question. And the second one, as you are actually moving from GPT-2 to GPT-3, in order to get us there, right, to this point, do you believe that just the size of the model is enough or we need to look at alternative technologies as well? And maybe that touches some of the interesting things that you do. Those are two great questions. And I'm start with the second one first, like moving, scaling up models, right? What what is What does it take? So, and this is a lot more difficult than just multiplying every parameter by 10 or, or 100, right? It turns out that for this like new generation of AI systems, this is a significant engineering challenge. It is highly non-trivial to build infrastructure and to uh, distribute models and, and build training pipelines in a way that they can efficiently use large GPU clusters. I mean, there are even dedicated chips are being built for, for that. And this is something where the skills for, for machine learning engineering and research and, and the scientists, they all, they all need to come together. Right? We need to build a system to um, design the training process in a way. We've, we've seen that if you make the slightest mistake with these hundreds of billions of parameters, those mistakes multiply. They get instabilities into your system. And if you don't build a dedicated and customly optimized training pipeline, which spreads your training code uh, up over hundreds of GPUs, then you're losing so much inefficiency that um, basically it's it's almost impossible to, to achieve training success. So that's super tricky. And this is also something that leads to a de-democratization of AI. What was the other question? So we're actually going to be able to uh... You don't need just to increase the parameters, but actually to move from GPT-3 to GPT-next, right? There is a lot of work to be done. So let's say that that becomes true. When when do you think we're actually going to get there of having a GPT-next? And then when do you believe we're going to have more GPT-next right? for whatever general purpose for computer vision and so on? And not only the timing, but how do you think customers are actually going to consume this? Because customers, clients, people, myself, Calvin, yourself, how do I actually going to consume this one? This is available. I have a vision of the as a service as we discussed. Oh yeah, that's, I think the question got even better once you repeated it, right? Because I think the customer side and the how to transform your businesses and your, your value creation processes is a highly crucial um, uh, aspect of that. So we're already seeing with things like Copilot, we're seeing a system that can generate code. And the way that system works is that it's basically a code autocomplete, which is pretty remarkable by itself, but it lacks this higher understanding. And uh, our current multimodal model that we're just in the process of launching um, can do things like it, like you can show the transform, you can the transformer architecture diagram to the model, and then ask it about where the um, positional embedding is or where the softmax is, and it basically zero shots understands this diagram. I've, on the weekend, I've showed it, showed it a treasure map, like a hand-drawn pirate treasure map. And I asked about navigation in that treasure map. I asked about where the 
um, where the treasure is buried. And the system understands that and puts that into context. So you can navigate, act, you can create and design. And one of the, the aspects that makes transformative AI from the perspective of open philanthropy is that transformative AI is capable of generating new knowledge. It is creative, if you want to call it that. And I think this is we are we are on the edge of seeing that happen. Um, this will happen very soon. Um, there are some highly innovative companies that uh, are already reshaping their business processes, are already reshaping how they think about value creation and data and human machine interaction. But those are a select few. And because the speed is so high and we'll see radical changes in uh, what AI can do and how we process information in very few years, maybe even months in some cases, then this will cause a massive disruption in how we organize ourselves as a society, I guess. I'm only excited about that, but at the same time, I'm, I'm a bit worried simply because if we manage to bring that to everybody, then yes, it will definitely structure our society, the way we think about everything, about services, products, uh, environment, and so on. But if we don't manage to actually bring all of those capabilities across, and if we still keep this in the hands of the few, I guess it will, it will shape our society, but from a very different perspective. So the fact that, for example, the work that you're doing with, um, with Aleph Alpha, uh, I, from, excites me because we did these studies and we want to deliver these capabilities to everybody and we want to make sure that, you know, uh, not only with Aleph Alpha, but maybe other companies, we definitely need to enable everybody from the uh, end user that is using an, an iPhone to, to the manufacturing company on the floor that actually is able to uh, to design better products, right, that we all use. So how do you feel about making this available for the wider society and community? Because this is something that, Looking forward, right? You know, I've been discussing this with friends and colleagues and family, right? You can't say that when you're looking at the future of AI, people are not worried. So, how do you feel? I mean, I'm not talking about the Terminator scenario, right? But I'm talking about the, the how do we deliver this to our friends, to our customers, to our society, to our towns, and so on? And how do you feel about the future of AI and its availability? Oh, yeah. I, I worry about that um, a bit, right? And that's kind of a good reason for me to postpone my retirement. Like we're, we're currently the, the only European company that is following that, that path, right? And, and we're basically picking up open source where OpenAI has left it off. Um, OpenAI has started as this nonprofit, heavily in open source invested. And after they've gotten a 1 billion uh, investment kind of from Microsoft, right, they changed to a for-profit company. GPT-3 is no longer open source. They want to build a commercial API. So they want to they centralize. They want to, of course, get a big piece of the pie. Um, and they also shown that they will and want to influence and change the model according to their ideas. So if that happens, and of course, because it's driven by technology, it's driven by progress, there's no way to avoid really that happening. Um, but I think what we need to do is we need to have transparency, we need to have trust, and we need to fundamentally put this on the grounds of a democracy. And that's, of course, one of the big things we're trying to achieve with Aleph Alpha. But yeah, of course, it's not something we can do by ourselves. We have a lot of uh, partners and HP, of course, um, one, one of them that we're bringing this 
making this accessible and transparent and usable for the academic community, but also for all enterprise customers, right? That don't necessarily want to um, buy into the monopolies that are being created there. Jonas, you brought up the partnership, and maybe this is a good place to talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about what HPE is doing in partnership with you to help make this all a reality. And, and what is HPE's role in what you are trying to do at Aleph Alpha? So one of the like one essential ingredient is, of course, driven by hardware and infrastructure. And that is, of course, where we are getting a lot of support. Um, we are currently in the process of onlining our, our data center, and we've gotten basically end-to-end -end support in planning that, um, helping us um, kind of get this set up, helping scope that. And uh, but the the collaboration goes far beyond that. So um, there's a substantial knowledge about operation of these systems, about efficiently combining uh, machine learning workflows, and of course there's also phenomenal AI R&D happening in HPE. So I think we're basically um, yeah we are growing this into a like all around partnership at least. I hope we would, um, but of course, it all started with us needing giant amounts of hardware. Soren, let me turn to you and have you talk a little bit about where HPE is going and what we're doing around this uh, AI space. Thank you, Calvin, for that. So, uh, as Jonas mentioned, it uh, it started initially on delivering the compute storage and whatever other else needs in order to actually go and solve the, the giant task, task of actually delivering this huge model. So working closely with Jonas on that and obviously being challenged by various supply chain problems and whatever not, we started to, uh, to understand that how the team was actually going about to solve the idea of uh, writing the models and uh, trying to train the models and how do we do that more efficiently. And this is where we, due to also, also our recent determined acquisition, we started to understand, is there a way where we can match the, the knowledge that we have within uh, in AI around determined AI, but others as well, to help and double down together with Jonas's team and look at how do we train this faster scale? How do we go out and think about uh, optimizing the hyperparameters that Jonas wanted also because they are not quite normal hyperparameters, obviously. So <laughs> we, we, we try to look together about can we actually enable our platform uh, and we are doing actively work on that as well with with the team. Can we actually enable our platform from to to solve Jonas's needs? So basically taking our determined AI software, which just launched the enterprise version just launched, uh, last week, can we actually take that and enhance it in such a way that matches the at scale capabilities that Jonas and the team are looking for? Because we are outside of the realm where just download the model and make it work. We are on the realm where we have a lot of unknowns. So the, the, the fact that Jonas and the team were able to bring us all of those challenges helped us define and is helping us actually create and define the, the next uh, features of our product and actually enable them quicker. So we are working together on that and soon hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to jointly get next generation models as well and help on the fulfill their dream, which it, it happens that is, you know, I've been dreaming about this for a long time myself as well. So working together with Jonas actually and the team is actually really good for us, for HP, for Aleph Alpha, but also I hope soon for the wider community and the society out there. In some of the background about Aleph Alpha, I see something talked about called multimodal AI models. 
That's a real tongue twister. Uh, it sounds like it's important to what you're doing with Aleph Alpha. Jonas, can I get a bit about what it is and how that is going to benefit AI? Yeah, so that, that's actually, that's a big trend in research currently. There's a lot of research being done um, that is focusing on multimodal models, meaning that it's AI systems that combine their understanding of image data and text data. And this is currently what we are very proud of because this is basically a research result coming from out of our lab that is showing technology that truly is world leading. And like in the past, we've always been a little bit kind of walking behind OpenAI, trying to catch up. I mean, rightfully so. It's no shame probably to try to catch up to the world's best. But um, this multimodal model really is something different. And um, the way that works is uh, GPT-3 uh, has been uh, amazing by being able to understand all kinds of language information and all kinds of language tasks, even challenges and tasks it has never seen before. And we are able now with our multimodal model, we are able to offer the same kind of power and flexibility, but you can freely combine text and image data. So you could basically uh, read technical diagrams. You can understand super complex things in images like things that have that are super uncommon where classical normal ai optic detectors and scene understanding will totally break down you can teach the model with few shot with just a few examples you can teach totally new visual concepts to the model and we've even seen that it can yeah it can master technical drawings architecture diagrams maps uh, and things like that and this is really a new generation of image understanding and multimodal understanding. And we're just we're just getting started here. We're, we're, we're currently evaluating these models with some select partners, and I'm sure we'll learn a lot about the model's capabilities, but so far it's already like blowing everything out of the water. Guys, I am just blown away by this conversation. It was fantastic for me to kind of be a fly on the wall and listen to you two. It's been a great conversation, and I know their stuff that we're doing together, and maybe there's a follow-up that we could have in our future that dives deeper into what we're doing here in the space between Aleph Alpha and HPE. Again, guys, really appreciate you joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure as well. Thank you, Carlton. Thank you, Jonas. You can find the podcast on Spotify Podcast, Google Podcast, Amazon Music and Audible, Podcast Addict, and great news, it was just added to iTunes Podcast. And if you really struggle to find it, go to feeds.transistor.fm slash around-the-it-block. Love hearing from you on Twitter, where you can find me as Calvin Zito. You can find our blogs at community.hpe.com. Until next time, thanks for joining me.